Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Job chapter 1, verses 8 to 22. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and surely, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I'm going to take a quick second before I dive in, uh, because I know that there are some uh, who sometimes when they watch our services back later, skip ahead to this point. Uh, Others who are listening to our podcast, so I'm going to once again, for your sake, remind you of the survey. Please make sure you fill out the congregational survey. Okay? Again, I'm watching you. I see you. There's an Amazon, there's a show on Amazon Prime right now called Them. Uh, It's the story of a black family who leaves the South during the Great Migration, uh, which was a season of American history when uh, African Americans, in many ways, were refugees, uh, fleeing uh, the oppression of the pre-civil rights era. Uh, They left, many of them left in hopes of finding new stability and safety and opportunity, But instead of finding those things, instead of finding open arms in the North and the West, they often found exclusion and resentment and clever legal ways uh, to keep them marginalized. But in the show, one of the reasons why this one particular family moved is that their infant son had been brutally murdered by a group of white racists. Uh, At the funeral of this child, a well-intentioned neighbor 
actually comes to this funeral and quotes our passage to the mother. She says to this grieving and justifiably angry mother, she says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He has a plan, she says. He gave him and the Lord took him away. Now in response, the mother becomes enraged, slaps the neighbor and says, well, when he comes for your boy, give my regards to your Lord. Now, knowing I was preaching on this passage, that scene, of course, stuck with me because it really emphasizes an important point. What are we to make of a God who is said to have plans, a God who is said to be in control, a God who is said to be loving and merciful and yet allows suffering, pain and sorrow, especially innocent suffering? What are we to do with the obvious, unjust, and harsh realities of life? What are we to do when there is innocent and unexpected suffering that comes against us or against those whom we love? And what should keep us from having that same angry and indignant response of that grieving mother? Well, today we continue our series called The Resurrection. Uh, This has been a series that wrestles with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then our faith, all of the preaching that you hear, is futile and it's useless. But if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, then everything that we experience in life now begins to come, uh, there's clarity, there's a lens through which we can now see what God may be doing. Because in the end, if God did, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then who cares what we think about where God is in the midst of our suffering? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then there's something that we must see through that resurrection that helps us understand a variety of things, including innocent suffering. And so today, I want to wrestle with that question. I want to look at one of the most famous stories in the Bible, about innocent stuff, suffering, the story of Job. Though one day I hope that we can uh, do a full deep dive into the book. I know there's many times that I'm referencing this book, and one day we'll hopefully be able to, get to actually walk through it. I want to see how this book helps us make sense of innocent suffering. And I want to do that by looking at several things. First, I want to take a look at um, how we often make sense of paradigm, or I'm sorry, of suffering, some of the paradigms that we often uh, look through when considering suffering, and then finally, how we can experience hope, right? So making sense of it, paradigms that we see through it, and then experiencing hope. First, making sense of suffering. Let Let me summarize just quickly the entire book of Job so that we've got it in front of us. Uh, It's an ancient book that wrestles with the same questions that we wrestle with today. Specifically, why is there suffering? All 42 chapters of Job center around really that key question. Why is there suffering? And here's what we're told about Job. Uh, God himself, as we saw in our passage, says that Job was a righteous and upstanding man. But then Satan comes along and says, well, the only reason that he is uh, righteous and upstanding is because he's a blessed man. And if you were to take everything from him, he surely would curse you. And with that, God allows Satan to take from Job everything that mattered to him. Job was a wealthy man. 
He lost it all. He was a family man. His children were killed. And so now, even in me saying that, we, you might already be asking yourself, well, why in the world would God allow such suffering, especially to such a moral man, a man that God himself saw as being righteous and upstanding? Why would God allow that to happen? If that's your instinct, if that's the instinct question, it's the right one. Because from the very first chapter of the book of Job, God's character and his justice are in question. We are supposed to be disoriented by what we're seeing here in our passage. And you know why? Because God's character and God's justice really are the central themes of the rest of the book. And here's what you're going to see as you read through the rest of the chapters. After Job loses everything, a real wrestling begins, particularly with Job's friends. He's got several of them who we see make appearances throughout the book. And in the, throughout the book, there's this back and forth conversation that Job is having, having with his friends. His friends would come and they would try to give him reasons for why he's suffering. And Job would argue with them about not agreeing with that, uh, with that train of thought that they present. And there's really two trains of thought. I'm going to summarize the entire book of Job here for you. There's two trains of thought that emerge from these 42 chapters in this back and forth. Okay? The first is this, is that his friends try to convince him that God is just and God is good. That's a good thing. They try to convince him that God runs the world with justice and goodness. Again, it's a good thing. But then they take that idea and then they extrapolate and they say, well then, if that's true, if God is just and God is good, then that means that if suffering comes... It's because you deserved it. You did something wrong. You sinned. And so because God is just and good, this is your punishment. Job, what have you done wrong that you deserve this punishment from God? Now, Job's response to them is to say, no, I've done nothing wrong. I am upright. I am righteous. I did nothing to deserve this deep suffering that I am in. And he's right, isn't he? I mean, isn't that the whole point of the first chapter that we just heard read? Job was righteous. Even God said so. But here's the other train of thought that begins to emerge, is that as Job defends himself, he begins to discredit God's justice. Why? Because Job actually holds to the same paradigm as his friends. This is not happening to me because I was unjust or sinful, and so the conclusion that begins to emerge is that, well, God then must not rule with justice. God must then be unjust. Why else would suffering come to me if I am innocent? See, they've all got the exact same paradigm. God rules with goodness and justice. If we are to suffer, it's because we are unjust. We are not good. Now, here's what I find so intriguing about the book of Job. As I said, this book is ancient. And yet thousands upon thousands of years later, the same central assumptions still remain with us today. When suffering comes, we still react in the exact same ways. We still assume the same paradigm. And for many, when they consider the Christian faith, this issue of suffering becomes one of the main struggles that they have with the faith. 
You know, the problem of suffering is still one of the central issues as to why people often reject God and in particular reject Christianity. In recent days, there have been several uh, Christians, those who have called themselves Christians, leaving the faith as a result of the dilemma that we see in the book of Job. In the last couple of years, my wife and I have even talked with pastors whose faith in part was crushed because of this kind of dilemma, the dilemma caused by suffering. How could a good God allow such terrible things in his world? And so I want to consider for a moment the paradigms that we often create when considering suffering. Job had some particular ones. They're similar to the ones that we hold today, but I want to take a look at often how we today look at suffering by considering our paradigms. Okay? There's a few that I want to put in front of you. First, one paradigm uh, that's very prevalent, of course, today is that there's actually not an all-powerful creative God in the world. We are the product of a set of random forces, and so suffering is merely the consequence of a universe in decay. And for those who suffer, the best you can do is just suck it up, be content with your lot in life until the end comes. And in the end, all suffering really amounts to nothing since in the end, the universe will eventually come to its fiery death. And you know what? For a lot of people, they're totally satisfied with that. They can just shut off that part of their brain that tries to make sense of suffering. They're just going to roll with things until the end. And of course, this is a very kind of atheistic, humanistic perspective on suffering. There's another perspective that's very related, and I actually kind of put it together into the same type of thinking. <clears throat> it's slightly nuanced, though. It's to say, well, maybe there is a God out there. You know, this would be deism. There's this God who's distant, really is uninterested in being involved in our lives, really isn't even maybe capable of being involved in our lives. He's just this kind of force, this vague force that's out there. And so it's really up to us then to make sense of suffering to do what we can to sort it out. I mean, in the end, both of those perspectives are really the same thing because they see a lack of God and his intervention, a lack of his involvement in the world. They kind of remove him from the equation. And maybe they're right. Maybe there really is no God. Maybe there really is no point to the suffering. Maybe. That's one potential paradigm. Another perspective, another paradigm that sometimes people approach with suffering is to say that maybe there is a God of love and compassion and mercy. Maybe there is a God who is just. But much like Job's friends, when suffering comes, it then must be because we deserve to suffer. He's good. He's, he's just. And so because of, when the suffering comes, we must have done something. Right? There's some kind of sin that we need to repent of. You know, I can think of many times where someone said that the suffering that even I was experiencing was because of God's judgment. Or maybe you can think of leaders or public figures that have said that something has happened, something awful has happened to our nation because there's judgment upon us. They connect it directly, the suffering directly to some particular kind of sin. Maybe that's the case. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe suffering really does come because you deserve it. There's another paradigm. There's another perspective. Many might say that there is this all-powerful God who is able to intervene, 
Because he doesn't, that must mean that he himself is immoral. Now, this is actually the, the type of accusation that you, you would hear from many of the new atheists today. You have men like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins who say the Christian God is a monster, really, who could intervene but callously refuses. He prefers to just watch his creation suffer. Maybe they're right. Maybe God is a calloused deity who finds some kind of pleasure in watching us wallow in our sorrow. Maybe. Now I wonder, given all those paradigms, do any of those resonate with you? You know, in the midst of suffering, do you have an impulse toward any one of those? If you do, I just want you to know, I sympathize with you. Suffering is extraordinarily disorienting, especially when we are also at the same time trying to consider and trying to know and trying to learn about a God who claims to be good, who claims to be just, who claims to be merciful and capable of intervening. It's very disorienting, and I sympathize with all of those paradigms. But here's the problem with all of those perspectives. They all possess essentially two false assumptions about suffering, which leads to their conclusions. And I want to take a look at, for a moment, why they are false. Here's the two false assumptions. First, they all assume certain things about the source of suffering. And the second thing is that they all assume that suffering must be understandable. Let me consider both of those for a second. First, they all assume certain things about the source of suffering. You know, one of the things that we, we really notice here in the story that we, we cannot miss is that while God allows this innocent suffering of Job, it's important to note that he's not the one that causes it. Who causes it? It's Satan who causes the suffering. Now, we will never understand the issue of suffering if we do not see the spiritual brokenness that is behind suffering. The world in which we live does not work the way it should. It's broken. Romans 8 speaks of how there's this groaning from all of creation, a longing that creation itself has to be set free from the decay of the universe. See, the effects of sin are not just something that impacts us individually. You know, from the biblical perspective, sin has impacted all of creation. And actually what's interesting is this is where the atheist and the humanist get it right, that the world is in active decay. It's falling apart. And that falling apart is part of what produces the suffering. They're right about that. I mean, all the universe is in this cycle of decay, and that decay is regularly creating for us persistent suffering. The difference, of course, between their perspective and the Christian perspective is that the decay is not random, but rather the result of this pervasiveness of sin. And on top of that, there is an evil one actively harnessing that brokenness. Now, that's not to say that Satan is the reason for all suffering, because I've also known others with that kind of paradigm. Satan is the one who has done it every, every time. It's like Satan's around every corner. There's a demon around every corner. You've got to avoid certain corners or else you're going to suffer because Satan's there. But it is worth saying. Ephesians 2, 1 John 5, tell us that he is an authority in this world. It's a limited authority, but he has an authority nonetheless. So I say all of this just to say 
that suffering has evil in it. The source of suffering must be seen as something that is evil. I mean, this is why when we see innocent suffering, we look at it and we say, that's just not right. There's something evil about innocent suffering. Now, from the atheistic perspective, you cannot call the horrors of this world evil. You don't have any basis for it. There's zero basis to call anything evil in an atheistic perspective because in order to call something evil, you must have something that's objectively good that you're comparing this suffering to. But as we think about the worst kinds of suffering, and I won't get into the long list of the worst kinds of suffering. You can use your imagination. When we look at it, we know there's something not right about it. There's something evil about it. And if that's how you feel, you're right. Because it's not the way that God intended things to be. This was not the way that he intended his creation to function. And so we must situate innocent suffering in its proper place. It flows from that which is broken, that which is evil. But the other, the second uh, assumption is that we often assume that suffering must be understandable. You know, one of the most striking things about the book of Job is the extent to which there are zero answers provided in the whole book. None. You know, over the past year, on numerous occasions, I've mentioned how the book of Job ends. But let me remind you once again, in the final chapters of the book, the only answer that Job gets as he questions God about suffering is God answering back, in essence, who do you think you are to question me? Let me read to you a few of those verses. In chapter 40, uh, starting in verse 6, God says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Just imagine that, God showing up in a storm. He says, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? To justify yourself? What is that? Job questioned God's character, and so God confronts that accusation. Are you really calling me unjust, Job? Then in verse 9, he goes on to say, Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like this? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. I am God, creator, maker, sustainer of all things. I know that which you could never comprehend. See, here's what God is doing here. God is again confronting Job to say, you're questioning my power? You're questioning my authority? I am the God of splendor. God is reminding Job of a couple of things. He's reminding Job of his, both his character and his power. And that's the only answer he gets. That's it. No other answers are given. Now, I will say, I have really wrestled with this response from God over the years. You know, when we come with our grief and our sorrow and our anger and our desire for answer, such a response seems cold and unkind and unloving, doesn't it? However, I've come to realize over the years that God's response to Job is a response that emphasizes the exact thing we actually most need in the midst of suffering. 
when we are suffering, what we, more, what we most need, more than answers to the suffering or the reasons for the suffering, is a reminder of God's character and a reminder of his power. That's what Job got. And so often, I think that's exactly what we need. Because in suffering, we need to know that we can trust God and that we can believe that he is powerful enough to deal with the suffering, don't we? And this is where we start to begin to experience hope in the midst of suffering. Rebecca McLaughlin uh, wrote a book called Confronting Christianity several years ago. It's a book that wrestles with some of the most difficult questions posed to the Christian faith, including the problem of suffering. I would highly recommend that book. But in her chapter on suffering, she draws on a story from John 11. Uh, It's the story of the death of Lazarus. Uh, McLaughlin uses that story as a micro-story of Scripture's macro-story of hope, and I want to take a few minutes to consider it. Because there's a lot of overlap to what we see in John 11, to what we see in Job chapter 1, and it also gives us the hope that we long for in the midst of suffering. If you know the story, Jesus is a close friend of Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus uh, becomes sick, and he is near death. Of course, lucky for Mary and Martha, they are very close friends to this miracle worker who is known for healing the sick. And so they call to him, asking him to come and heal their brother. However, in uh, John 11, verse 5 and 6, here's what happens when Jesus hears of this sickness. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha, uh, I'm sorry, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so here it is. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick... He stayed where he was for two more days. What? He loved them. He could heal their brother, but instead he just waits for two days. I wonder, does that ever sound like your story of suffering? You know God could intervene, but it just, there's silence. You don't hear anything from him. It's almost like he's just sitting and waiting. And what happens? Well, Lazarus dies. And in verse 17, John tells us that by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been dead and in the ground for four days. So Mary and Martha, in essence, they got silence, like a lot of silence. They got silence from Jesus in the midst of the sickness. They got silence from Jesus in the death of their brother. And they got silence from him for days that followed that death. Mary and Martha, in a lot of ways, were in the same boat as Job. No answers. Now, when Jesus arrives, Martha questions him. says, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, like Job, their suffering seemed to put into question the goodness and the character and the power of Jesus. But what always strikes me about Jesus' response to them is actually found in verse 35. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. When he goes to the tomb, it says when he was there with them that Jesus wept. Here's what strikes me about that. I mean, just consider everything we just said. Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus, he knows the power that he holds to heal this man, Lazarus. And as if you know the story, to raise him from the dead. And yet Jesus is there. 
and he decides to enter their sorrow. He's moved deeply by their brokenness. And so he weeps. I mean, he himself hates the death that they endured. He hates this sorrow and suffering that they find themselves in, enough that it moves him to tears. Also interesting, if you know the rest of the story, he does not come only to empathize with their pain. He doesn't just weep with them, but he also comes to the tomb to show his power over death. See, Jesus had claimed that he is the resurrection and the life, and he shows up now to prove it. And if you know the story, he commands Lazarus to come forth. And Lazarus does. He rises again from the dead. Now, I said a minute ago that this story is a micro story of Scripture's macro story of hope. How so? Well, those days leading up to Lazarus' death, they feel a lot like present suffering, don't they? We cry out and we, we don't seem to get the answers that we want from God. We assume that God must not care. But then... We come to places like this. We come to church services or we sit down and we read the Bible and we begin to hear about Jesus proclaiming himself to be resurrection power. But we hear, we also hear, as he's saying such things, we begin to realize that he's not one who is detached or unconcerned with our sorrow, but rather we begin to hear the story of how Jesus steps into our sorrow, how Jesus weeps with us, how he himself puts himself into a position of experiencing suffering. I mean, isn't that the gospel story? That Jesus is unjustly treated like a criminal. He's unjustly tortured. He's unjustly, justly killed. He was truly innocent and experienced profound suffering. Jesus enters into and empathizes with our pain of suffering. He does not just enter our pain on the cross, but he also then goes to the grave. And much like this rising that we see where Lazarus comes to life, we again see Jesus coming up out of the grave. I mean, this is the gospel story. He rises in his resurrection power to prove the extent to which he has that resurrection power and authority that death and suffering and sin, they've all lost their power. And through the cross and resurrection, here's the key. Remember what we said, innocent suffering seems to put into question God's character and his power. But through Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection, God proves his character as one who's willing to step into our pain. But he also proves his power by being the one who raises Jesus from the dead proving that death and sickness and sin no longer have authority, ultimate authority. This is the power of the resurrection. It reminds us and proves to us that even in the midst of suffering, God is good. He is powerful. And you know what that means? That means that all of the promises that are to come are also ours as we trust in Jesus. There's promises throughout the scriptures that point our vision to beyond the suffering that we experience now. And for those that trust in Jesus, let me give you one little glimmer, one little picture, a vision of what is to come. If you know Revelation 21, probably one of the greatest passages of all scripture, 
It reminds us of what is to come for those who trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, hear me, this is your coming day. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He, is, he, he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. For those in Jesus, that's your coming day. That's, that is the coming day that reminds us of the goodness of God. He's accomplishing much through his son, but it's also the power of God seen in the resurrection that all things will be restored. Resurrection power is ours, and it will impact not only our own life one day, but all of creation will be restored, for he is making all things new. Those tears that you've shed will one day be wiped away. That sorrow you've experienced will one day be replaced by joy through restoration. Resurrection power. And so the bottom line is this. In suffering, like Job, having lost it all, like Mary and Martha, who during that silence of those days that followed uh, their cry, in their cries for help, like them, I don't know exactly what God is doing. I don't know exactly why he's allowed what he's allowed. What I do know, though, is that through suffering, there is a unique opportunity to see his power and his character. I do know that in suffering, he is not apathetic or distant, for in Jesus, he truly proves himself to be loving and gracious by Jesus being a truly innocent sufferer, entering our sorrow. I do know that the resurrection proves that for those who trust in Jesus, you will experience what it is for all things to be made new. Let me just close with this. You know, over the course of our own American history, uh, African Americans have had a profound understanding of suffering, and yet in the midst of that suffering, um, have also proven they've been a testament to God's sustaining grace, as many have, through all of that suffering, remained orthodox and committed followers of Jesus. And one of the ways that God has sustained the black church is through their understanding that suffering might not be understood but that it will one day be redeemed. And there's an old African-American spiritual written by a formerly enslaved person called We'll Understand It Better By and By. To close, let me just read for you the words of those who know what it is to suffer long, but to trust in redemption. Trials dark on every hand, and we may not understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. We'll he'll guide us with his eyes and we'll follow till we die and we'll understand it better by and by. By and by when the morning comes, all the saints of God are gathered home. We will tell the story of how we've overcome and how we'll understand better by and by. 
All sorrow will turn to joy. All tears will be wiped away. And we will one day understand. But for now, let us look to Jesus and his resurrection power for hope, even in the midst of some of the worst suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a distant God. We thank you that you are not an unjust God, but that you are a God who is intimately close. You are a God of goodness and justice. And God, you have proven that to be the case in Jesus. For in Jesus, we experience your goodness, for he has come, the truly innocent one, suffering for us. And in him, we see your character. But God, we also see your power. For he did not remain dead, but he has risen. And that same resurrection power is ours as we trust in him so that one day, Revelation 21 will be our experience as we experience everything made new. So God, I pray for those who are here, who are suffering. Those who look out into the world and are very disoriented by the suffering that is out there. God, would you give us eyes to see you in the midst of it? Would you give us hope and joy in the midst of it? And trust that you are at work. And as we now turn to the table, would your table be a reminder for us of your goodness and grace in Jesus. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.